from Noble Robot on East Hennepin Avenue in transformative Minneapolis, this is Nice Games Club, the show where nice game devs talk games and game development. I'm Ellen Burns-Johnson, and I make nice games. I'm Steve McGregor, and I make nice games. And I'm Martha Croy, I too make nice games. In this episode, we've got part two of my time at the 2023 Serious Play Conference, where I had a wide-ranging discussion with Jennifer Javornik about game-based learning. So if everyone's ready, let's start. So you talked to a bunch of folks at the conference. Yeah, a bunch. And we uh, played some of that last week. Yep. But we got a full episode from one of your interviews this week. Yeah. So Jennifer Javornik is, I think, the chief um, partnerships liaison. I might be butchering that title. Sorry, Jennifer. But uh, yeah, she's one of the executives at Filament Games. Mm Mm-hmm. Out of Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah. Which you went to their website before the episode, and you were like, it's so cool. So cool. You guys should all go, go to the website right now. Go, okay. you, go right, to filamentgames.com. Right. Yep. Okay, I'll do that. There's a zebra. I see a giraffe. There's underwater. There's a dolphin. This looks like some sort of... This is civics. Oh, this game looks cute. What the heck? I know, right, Stephen? Oh, the little robot's got a top hat. I know. There's... Oh, oh. someone's getting a knock. Oh, we're doing CPR. Okay. <laughs> This is a follow-along at home activity, I think. <laughs> Go to the website. That's right. the time to do it. Yeah. There's so, dinosaurs. So preview this discussion. Um, it's uh, wide-ranging, as you described. It's wide-ranging. So we kind of start out by um, talking a little bit about Jennifer's uh, experience as a judge of the Serious Play Awards. Mm-hmm. So they do um, they do like an awards, the different, different categories and things like that. And I wanted to learn a little bit about her experience because this this interview took place on Tuesday um, the 10th, right? So this was technically before the conference started in earnest, mm-hmm. before the session started. Um, and she had spent most of the day, like six to eight hours playing educational games um, <laughs> and like doing judging and critiquing and things like that. So she was like, <laughs> I think she said at one point, like, you're going to get a great interview because I have no filter right now. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, she was fantastic. So I started out by just asking her about that. But we then kind of went on to talk a little bit about game-based learning um, as Filament Games practices it and brings it to life, how they get funding, how they work with their partners to build out games. Uh, and we also talked a little bit about just game development in the Midwest. So, um, yeah, like I said, wide ranging, um, but super valuable. So I hope you all enjoyed as much as I did. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. I'm so excited to talk to you. <laughs> I'm excited to be here. Yeah. You've been here all day now. Judging games, from what you told me. I have. So uh, this year, they asked me to judge the tabletop competition, Okay, um, which was fun. But that means like you have to come a day early to actually be physically in person to play board games. I have played many board games today about <laughs> financial literacy, uh, uh, entrepreneurship, math. Um, I learned how to become a better Mercedes-Benz employee. Cool. Um there were others. Oh, I learned about like um, all of the kind of all the various issues in Puerto Rico. There was a really broad spectrum, but it was very enjoyable because a with board games, you really see like the heart and soul that the creators put into it. Yeah, um, and b like the the mechan- the mechanics tend to be, I think, a bit simpler than video games. So the mechanics and the connection to learning objectives are very strong. Yeah. Uh, but it also made me appreciate video games because sitting there and reading rules and trying to learn it in a group was yeah. challenging. Yeah. You know, I love how games just kind of slide you in and guide you along so you're up and running. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and I think um, since you're working with film and games, is most of the work that you guys do more digital? We mostly do digital. We okay. have had the opportunity to make one board go board game in our 18 year history, but mostly digital. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes a, I think that makes a lot of sense. I'm just gonna quick. Um, well, it's nice that you went, out, like, went through a lot of co uh, different topics. Uh, I hope hopefully that kind of kept things a little fresh, even though you're like reading rules, planning the game, <laughs> rules, planning the game. Yeah. Um, but let's get back to that in a second. I wanted to, you know, we talked about this a little bit before we started the mic, but um, one of the things we wanted to talk about was what you do at Filament Games, what the studio's up to, and kind of how it's plugged into the Midwestern game scene. Sure. Yeah, yeah happy to. So Filament Games is a video game studio that focuses on making games for positive impact. We're a for-profit studio, but we're mission-based, so that means any work that we do in the studio has to fit our mission. Mm -hmm. And our mission is to create playful experiences that improve people's lives. So we've been around, we're one of the OG. <laughs> uh, we've been around for 18 years. Um, today, Filament is about 70 people. We make games for two-year-olds to senior citizens. We make games for any and all content areas, and we work across devices. So we make games for PC, browsers, mobile phones, tablets, VR, MR, XR, AR, all the R's. All the and R's. Custom <laughs> toy integration, like basically if it's playful, we'll take a stab, at it, a stab at it. So as chief partnerships officer, I have a couple of different roles, but essentially um, I am the main person who thinks about our strategy and kind of executes uh, the work to build relationships outside of the studio. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the work that Filament Games does is service for hire. So we get hired by organizations or people or universities that want to hire us to design and build a game. And then they own the IP and take it to market. So yeah. that part kind of partnership is pretty transactional. It's they're paying us for a service. Um, we also have been working really hard in the last five years on building some internal IP. And those partnerships are come in a lot of varieties. It can be um, partners who want to co-fund co like part of the building experience. It could be, you know, just partners to do our translation or kind of various services that we need. Um, it's partnerships for, you know, with school, like testing partnerships. Okay. Uh, promotional partnerships. So there's a lot of variety, but basically if someone wants to talk to film and games, they usually start talking with me. There's so much variety in what you just described. And just, I am lucky to have a job that's never boring. Yeah. <laughs> that is kind of, that is kind of what it is. I think in learning games, um, it's never the same project. It's never the same audience. It totally makes sense. I agree. Yeah. And I do, I am like tribute for the studio. I think one day we counted, there's like three introverts in the studio and I'm one of them. So I was like, <laughs> let me be the one to talk to strangers and try, you know, kind of get everything set up. So but by the time the rest of the studio meets them, you know, they're already friends and it's, uh, you know, a good working relationship. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Out of curiosity. So when you're working with partnerships, um, you said that sometimes when it's kind of, I think you said service for hire, people are coming to you, they want to do something game-based, they know that's what you do, so they come to you, and then you're building a relationship from there. Yeah. Or we're, we're basically coming to figure out if we can build what they, design and build what they need and want for like the budget that they have. Yeah. So it's a more transactional, it's more of a services-based. Yeah. 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 That makes a lot of sense. Um, so my employer, this is not related to the podcast, but um, my employer, uh, 
ELB learning does that occasionally. Okay. And um, I think it's interesting, at least in my experience, and I've only been with the company for a little over a year, but at least in my experience, expectations are so all over the place when it comes to games. People, they don't really know what it's going to cost. And it can seem like this game itself is simple, but the technology needs might really impact the cost and balloon that to something way beyond what they expected. I'm curious if that's your experience as well. And how the heck do you navigate that? (laughs) Yeah, that's actually a really good question. I'm happy to share my expertise here because it was definitely, I've been with Filament for nine years mm-hmm. and it was definitely a skill that I've built over that time to yeah. kind of try to try to get to the conversation of what do you need and it can we provide a solution for the dollars and time frame that you have. Yeah. Right. So a lot of times, you know, and I want to set the project up for success. So what right. I don't want to do when I'm talking to them is kind of promise the world and then you get to the game team and they're like, we have no, we have no time to build what you thought was going to happen. So how about you take this instead? So we spend a lot of time with our customers. We actually just, we don't start. Most of our customers have never made a game before. Yeah. And they come to us for our expertise. Mm -hmm. And that can be like a nonprofit that's won a grant for like to create an educational game, or it could be a university professor who's a deep domain expert, but doesn't know about games, you know, mm-hmm. could be corporate training, could be anything. So part of them is just educating them, you know, about making games. You know, it's, it's, we live in such a cool world of, um, we, we make technology. So essentially we're software companies, mm-hmm. but what we're doing is very creative. And yeah. at the end we're building experiences that are hoping to transform people. (laughs) So it is not a linear path to get to all of those things. So a lot of our customers do have experience working with software vendors where you're like, well, here's, you know, here's what we, this is what we need in our website. And then, well, you do what they need for the website and it's done. Like we're trying to evoke emotion and we're trying to inspire and we're trying to transform people. Mm -hmm. So first of all, as I really focus on, the journey they're about to embark is both technical and creative. Mm. We build in, we do offer fixed scope, fixed price work. We have to over 50% of our clients every year uh, come to us because they want a grant or funding and there's no more after that. That's it. So you have to hit it. So we talk about like, well, let's, figure out what your learning objectives or your transfer player transformation goals are. And then let's us try to craft a pitch or an idea that we can make for your budget. And sometimes it's a little bit, it's, we don't get it right the first time because, you know, it's a weird thing where we have our chief creative officer comes up with the pitch and he has a sense of what things cost, but then it goes to our technical estimation team. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're out of sync. He thinks he's built, let's say a 200 K pitch. And then it goes to estimation and it's 300. So then we have to decide, well, is this pitch just too complex or can we remove scope to get to it? Yeah. So I really encourage when I'm talking to clients, as much as they feel comfortable, I understand that clients don't want to reveal their budget a lot of the time because they want to get a competitive price. Right. But let's face it, you can build with one idea, you, there's a million dollar version of that game mm-hmm. and there's a hundred K version of that game. Mm-hmm. Like you can't tell me that f- a fraction game always costs X no, because <laughs> you can really change the complexity. Right. So I kind of give them that lecture to try to draw it out of them. Yeah. But 
you never know. Some, some, especially if you're going to competitive bid, they just won't tell you. Yeah. So then it's like, well, if you're not going to give me what your price is and you are going out to competitive bid, you need to clearly lay out everything that you want. So to get to a close of enough apples to apples comparison between vendors, because I feel like a lot of times our competitors either don't know what things cost or, you know, they're making assumptions that the customer doesn't need X, Y, Z and doesn't include it. With us, we have so much experience. We know they're going to need, let's say, mm-hmm. you know, a teacher dashboard because it's a game that's going to be played in school. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I think a lot of it is I do a lot of talking, a lot of expectation setting. I try to explain to them that, you know, game-based learning, the process is iterative. They get to be part of the process. Um, and I try to just... I try to get them comfortable so they'll be as transparent as possible on their budget. That makes a lot of sense. And it goes back to what you were, you know, that is, that totally makes sense in the way that you're talking about this, why your title is like partnerships. You're focused on partnerships because it doesn't need to be that, right? It's not, it's not they can just give you like a one sheeter and that's a bill. Right. You print, out, you print out a game like it's a 3D. Exactly. Printer. It's not like a car where it's like the, yeah. the dealership knows what they paid for the car. So they know how much it's not like a hard negotiation because mm-hmm. everything's fungible mm-hmm. because you can, you can, you know, ratchet up the, the fidelity of the game. You could ratchet it down. You could ratchet up the co- complexity. You could ratchet it down. Mm-hmm. There's so many variables at play. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess my advice to game developers is just try to explain it in a way that makes you very approachable so that they'll reveal your budget and then you can give them a list of what you can do for that budget. And I would say customers who are out there listening, who are thinking of hiring a, a game-based learning company or a video game studio, now you kind of know why we always ask that question. Yeah. Yeah. Because you could be asking a question that's like, okay, you can serve that with Coca-Cola. Or you could be asking something like, well, that's a Beaujolais. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's going to cost a lot more. And you don't, because, yeah, it's just not necessarily obvious. Yeah. yeah. Um, so thinking about uh, just kind of switching topics here. You've been around for, you said 19 years? Oh, nine. Nine years. No, Filament's been around Filament's, for 18. Yeah. You've been with I've been for around nine. for nine. Yeah. So Philbin's been around for 18. Has it been in Wisconsin that entire time? Yeah. 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 The three original founders are still with the company. They're still very involved. Like they, they, they're very active and involved in the studio. Um, they were all in some way affiliated with the University of Wisconsin mm-hmm. when um, all of the big research and game-based learning was happening like 20 years ago, yeah. kind of when there were, you know, kind of this elite group of researchers with Jim, James Paul G and um, Kurt Squire and Constance Steinkuhler and other people who were there. And there was just a surge of research. Um, our CEO, Dan White, was doing his master's degree under Kurt Squire and Jim James Paul G was his advisor um, for his thesis, he ended up writing a thesis about how to teach about ocean science via game. And um, yeah, Filament, uh, Dan, Dan, and Alex were all working at like a quasi-university entity that was like, I think it was called 
I don't know what it's called, like maybe the e the collab. It was kind of an e e learning type things where they were making media for learning mm -hmm. and. Um, what was happening is the researchers and Jim Paul G, they were just getting, because he had published his book and he would get inquiries from all over the world saying, yeah. I've read your book, let's make a game. And he's like, Oh no, no I'm a researcher. <laughs> and what he realized is he didn't have somewhere to refer people. Yeah. So he encouraged Dan and Dan, Dan and Alex to like form a company to actually put into practice, like to actually create games based on the research. Yeah. So while we have never had any official ties to the university, certainly we came out of the university. Cousins. Yeah. 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 That's really cool. Um, my sister went to UW-Madison, not for anything related to games or media, um, but I saw a family in the area. Uh, so I have, not that I'm allowed to admit this, I am on the record, but because I'm a Minnesotan, I'm not supposed to say I like of Wisconsin. <laughs> I do. At least, yeah. Um, That's great. I'm, and it's, it's I like Minnesota. Oh, yeah. Okay. See, yeah, it can, sure. Peace has been made here. Exactly. In Canada. Um, <laughs> it had to be in Canada. It had to be though. in Canada, neutral ground. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, and it's exciting, I think, if we put aside the Minnesota Wisconsin rivalries, um, but and just think about like the game games industries overall and all its different permutations, it's always exciting to see like a successful studio that's been around for a while in the Midwest. Um, for sure. So I, you know, I'm just excited that that's uh, continued for such a long time. Um, I'm curious where you guys, you know, if this is something you want to talk about, but like, where do you recruit talent from? You know, that's a great question. Yeah. So Filament, for most of our existence, we were a come to the studio every day company. Okay. Um, and while we, um, we'd recruit from anywhere, that means, you know, we recruited a lot from people in Wisconsin, but mm -hmm. if we recruited people outside the state, it was under the agreement that they would move yep. during the pandemic. Um, we experienced significant growth. We grew by about 20 people during the pandemic wow. and essentially decided to open up our hiring radius. Mm -hmm. I think the first few people that got hired during the pandemic, it was under the pretense of when the pandemic's over, you will move here. Mm -hmm. But I think that slowly disappeared as the pandemic progressed. And we just decided we would be a, you know, some people would remain in Wisconsin, but some people would be um, from out of town. And actually with kind of turnover and just some natural attrition, uh, today Filament is 50% is Wisconsin based and 50% outside of Wisconsin based, all still US based. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, and we've kind of, we have just, we ended up being a remote, we are now a remote first company, I would call us. Okay. We still have a physical office space, but it's in one of Madison's entrepreneurial hubs that, mm -hmm. that offers flexible space. Mm -hmm. So we only have about eight desks set up. It's a mailing address and Few people are actually go to the office every day and most people are remote. So we, um, we hire a variety of people. I mean, I think even during my nine years, I've seen that like just the rise of game-based learning, like bachelor's degrees and master's degrees, something that never existed when, you know, I started there. So I think a lot of the people that we end up bringing in are coming out, at least on the game design side from programs that are focused on game-based learning, yeah. which is really nice because we used to kind of do on-the-job training <laughs> to try to teach people game-based learning. And you mm -hmm. kind of learned a bit by osmosis and a 
bit by like training and, and co-sharing work. And now people are arriving fully formed, which is amazing. We are a studio that will hire people right out of college, which I know is not the case for a lot of studios. Um, we have a lot of big studios in Madison and a lot of them do not, but mm -hmm. we do. Um, you know, a lot of people ask me what it takes to get hired at Filament. I was like, well, you can, if you have a degree in what you're, the role you're applying to, that's great. Mm -hmm. Not necessary. Um, we do all disciplines go through some kind of test. So you'll be just know that in your interview process, you will get to a test in your discipline. And we require that you have uh, a portfolio sample of work. Mm -hmm. So it's okay if it's a student pro project and you just did the engineering, but other people did the art and design if you're applying to the engineering position. Yeah. So you have to have finished playable games where you contributed to the discipline you're applying to that we can actually play. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so it's kind of a combination between that. Um, I think, you know, we do that. We, because, you know, ultimately so much of the work we do is services, um, you know, there's just, a, so there's a lot of, you know, and game engineering programs and UX programs and game design programs where they, use, they learn the skills to make what we need. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the end of it, we're like a services-based, kind of like a consulting firm. Mm -hmm. So we usually have to teach kind of the customer management expectation skills mm. yep. in our studio. So um, that's why I think we're a little bit more open to hiring people as their first job because basically everyone, if it's your first job or not your first job, we kind of have to train a lot around kind of client management skills. Yeah. It's a challenging skill set. And if you know, you're going to have to train people on it anyway, then, you know, yeah, we're kind of open to different ways to do it. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. I mean, a lot of other companies have gone through the same thing. Organizations who were either completely in person or slightly hybridized went through the pandemic and then the pandemic and then the pandemic and then the yeah. pandemic. Um, and through that kind of evolved into something that was more hybridized or fully remote. Um, I think our intention was to be hybrid yeah. for the people that were still in Madison. Yeah. But it kind of just, for us, I think what it really came down to is we spend so much time talking to clients on video. Yeah. Very few of our clients are in Madison, Wisconsin. Right. In fact, I can think of maybe three in the nine years I've been there. Yeah. So we're working with people all over the country, all over the globe. Right. So what we realized really quickly that actually it was a better experience for our teams and for our clients for each person to be in its own Zoom window rather than people crowded in a conference room, like looking at a TV mm -hmm. trying to talk. Yeah. So I think that was the cincher. And and what really why hybrid, I think, never really worked post-pandemic is that because people had flexibility and can come in when they want, the whole team was never in the office at the, the same, same time. time. So even if you were coming to the office, you were taking Zoom calls with your teammates because it, was, it wasn't a day they were working right. on site. Right. So, you know, time, I think, I don't think we have any big conclusions on which one is better at this point. Mm -hmm. I think... Obviously, people who have stayed at Filament is because they want to work in this hybrid, I mean, this remote environment. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the reason why we didn't before the pandemic is because we always kind of our go-to line was like kind of creativity 
like creativity spontaneously happens when we're physically together. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think, I think we need even more time to have the perspective of, did this kill our creativity or are we, did we lose some of the benefits of being in person? I mean, probably, but maybe what we gained in remote was as good. I don't know. Yeah, no, I didn't want to ask that question directly. Did it kill your creativity? But, um, you know, being in a creative role, I do miss the days where I could like walk over to the pool table or play ping pong with someone while we're working through a problem or we just start playing and then we end up having a, an idea for something. And, and I don't really feel like that's uh, something I've been able to recapture in a remote setup. Yeah. Um, keep thinking about ways that I might be able to create like spaces and time for people to do that. But, you know, people's calendars have to, uh, have to allow for that as well. Yeah. And then it's always like, I know as a management team, we're always like, well, we want the people in Madison to get together, but we don't want to have like so much Madison stuff going on that people who are remote feel totally excluded. Like they're part of a separate company. Yeah. So then that's really hard to be like, how many in-person celebrations should we have in a year? You know, Uh, especially because we're, we kind of ran the math of flying everyone to Madison and it just wasn't sustainable. It's not great math. (laughs) No, it's like, it's bad math. It's bad math. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Relatable challenges. The company, um, the company I work for it, cause I'm part of a, the smaller division, um, that focuses mostly on games. Um, and we have a platform that we're mostly focused on as a division, but the broader company is like 700 people. Okay. Um, and they're global and they have multiple different divisions, lots of different products. Uh, but they, I think they went through the same kind of conversations with the management and leadership teams and they just said, okay, we're just going to pull the plug and they just shut down all the offices. And I think it makes a little more sense when you have, you know, they went through a bunch of acquisitions. They've got a bunch of global talents. They don't probably want to fly people from India to Utah on a regular basis. Um, But I'm sure it was a, I'm sure it was hard because there is something that you give up. It's a trade-off. I think we're still certain, you know, figuring out exactly what the trade-offs are. For sure. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Um, So, I was just about to ask how virtual playtesting goes, but that reminded me that you playtested a bunch of games today and I want to talk about that. Oh, you do? Yes, okay. Do. <laughs> yeah, we can talk about that. I yeah. also want to, you started, your first question was about the Midwest, so I want to come back to that oh, too yeah, yeah. later. Yeah, I thought we'd have a wandering conversation and we totally have. Yep. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering in you know your nine years with Filament and maybe in the, the broader approaching couple of decades that Filament has been going, what trends have you seen when it comes to games and the industry in the Midwest? What are you seeing around you more locally, maybe in Wisconsin and just like in the region overall? Well, that's a great question. I think when filament, when I started filament at nine, uh, you know, nine years ago, I didn't come from the video game industry. Mm-hmm. I was aware that there were other video game studios in town. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time there were, there were actually more game-based learning studios than there are now. There's now only one that's kind of loosely, um, affiliated with the university called Field Day Labs, and we're friends. Um, but yeah, but what's also interesting is that, you know, kind of one of the first studios in Madison and video games wasn't Filament Games. It was a studio called Raven Software. Mm-hmm. And they're one of the three studios that make Call of Duty every year. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and then, you know, kind of knew they were there, but like we didn't talk to them. And then there was another like mobile studio called For Blue. And you know, we kind of knew one or two people there, but we weren't really close and we didn't talk to each other. And it it was, 
everyone was kind of doing their own thing and we kind of were aware there were other video game studios in town. Yeah. Um, but then kind of a few years into probably like six or seven years ago, um, there was an effort between uh, professors at the University of Wisconsin, uh, Madison Region Economic Development, um, who pulled in all the studios kind of in in Madison, in the greater Madison re uh, region, and kind of picked a day during, I think it was during Forward Fest, which is kind of Wisconsin's version of South by Southwest, mm -hmm. to have kind of a community meeting of kind of all the video game stakeholders. Cool. And kind of at that meeting, kind of collaboratively decided to form an industry group. Smart. And over that years have evolved into today a kind of thriving nonprofit organization called the Wisconsin Games Alliance. So we kind of end, ended expanding our scope beyond Madison to the entire state. Mm -hmm. And now we are the professional trade association for the video game industry in Wisconsin. Um, kind of over that kind of effort to formalize this kind of trade group, working with economic development, both Madison regional economic development and Wisconsin economic development was really good at first, just all the studios knowing each other, kind of understanding where we were going. And what we realized over the years is the more that we presented ourselves as a group and as an industry group, hmm. it kind of helped on so many different fronts. It helped on attracting new studios to Madison because yeah. now people could see, oh, there's like a cluster there. So that means there's going to be talent there. So like that's somewhere that would be makes be smart to open a studio. I think it helped us all attract talent because I think before we were like, Hey, you're in LA. How about you move your entire world to Wisconsin? <laughs> and I think, you know, if you're that person, you're kind of like, I don't know this company. Like what happens if it doesn't work out? Right. I will have moved my entire family yep. to Wisconsin, to Madison. And what are we going to do then? Well, now it's like, well, there's a thriving scene. Yeah. So um, you know, today, you know, there's so many big studios that have established um, stu uh, offices in Madison, including Epic Games and PUBG and uh, Lost Boys is there, part of uh, Endeavor Group and like Roundhouse. Like there's so many huge studios or offices of bigger studios. Mm -hmm. And really that synergy has like just helped, I think, the whole industry grow. The other important thing we did is we established um, an, a Midwest Developers Conference called MDEV every year, where we kind of invite everyone in the Midwest to come to Madison for a day of like networking, education, and kind of celebrate our craft. So that's been really cool. And then... Um, just this year, kind of another exciting thing is kind of Wisconsin got its first video game publisher, kind of backed by Tinseltown Tech up in Green Bay, but also, who's ultimately backed by Microsoft. Mm -hmm. um, and now Midwest Games is uh, yeah established and kind of looking to support the Mid Midwest games industry yeah, that's huge with news. publishing dollars. Yeah, that's cool. That's very cool. Yeah, you know, I'm glad that you kind of talked, took us through the whole story because... Um, I think it can feel like we have a lot less industry in Minneapolis and, you know, there's some fragmentation and people are you know, trying to integrate and things like that. It's a challenging, it's challenging. Um, but the 
theme of the story you just described about like coming together and being able to kind of put forth a unified community face mm-hmm. is I think really important to kind of underline. Um, I think it is because I think it goes from being like, Oh, your studio is in Madison. How random. Yeah. To like, Oh, your studio is in Madison. That's an industry cluster. Yeah, exactly. Kind of like an Austin or a Raleigh or, you know, um, yeah, you know, different aspects like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I think the, uh, you know, it's probably, I don't know when this podcast is airing, but I think the other important thing is that, um, as an industry group, along with the ESA, um, we are now formally working with the legislature to pass a video game credit mm. um, tax incentive. Cool. Uh, so it's still, we're having uh, kind of our first day in the Capitol uh, where all the video game studios are coming to like talk about their studios and kind of showcase the games they made to like all the different legislative staff and legislatures at the Capitol. And then we'll formally be going to testify later this fall. Um, so cross your fingers for us because, um, you know, now that we're here, mm-hmm. um, the credit would just help us give us all a boost. A, it would make all of our pricing more competitive mm-hmm. and the credit, it, you know, we'll see where it ends up. Like there's going to be debates about how best to structure it. But one of the ideas on the table is to provide the tax credit for every Wisconsin based imp- every Wisconsin-based employee that a Wisconsin studio employs. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which is the perfect incentive for filament game. Mm-hmm. Like as someone who's remote, we can hire everyone, anyone across the country. Mm-hmm. But if suddenly we're getting a tax credits for Wisconsin-based employees, you can better believe we are going to work extra hard to find amazing talent that maybe might have not been as obviously found had we not put a little bit more effort into it. Yeah. It creates kind of this nice feedback loop where you're incentivized to find more talent that's in the state. Exactly. And then that boosts the level of talent in the state across the board. And then it helps the universities because the universities that have all these game and game adjacent programs suddenly can suddenly their pipeline of students getting jobs in Wisconsin studios is stronger. So they can boast, well, our graduates you know, uh, get employed at this percent rate because we're all, you know, we're all incentivized. Folks, you listen to podcasts. I'm I'm guessing. I, I mean, I could prove it. Um, <laughs> you can't. You listen yeah. to at least one. If you uh-huh. listen to this one, you all do listen to at least one podcast. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, I'm going to put on my logic hat. I'm going to deduce that, like, you are eligible to review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, yep. Spotify, and wherever else you might award stars based on how much you enjoy or find valuable the podcast you're listening to. This is all tracking so far with the two yeah, of you? Yeah, this makes sense. Yep. This makes okay, sense. so... Basically, the conclusion, the the inescapable conclusion, right, is that you, dear listener, yeah, the person who is a podcast listener, at least for the moment, should go directly now to Apple Podcasts, yep. Spotify, or wherever else you rate your podcast. I mean, all all of them, really. <laughs> I mean, you could. I mean, you have to go to one. Yeah, that's one. The, those are the rules. That's the rule. That's what we've just determined. Got to do it. Mm. Why not? You know, all of them. Yeah, rate the show. A bunch of them. Now, the reason we're asking you to do that, we're begging you to do that. It's pretty shameless uh, because it helps uh, people find the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's a it's an algorithmic world out there, folks. Um, and uh, any little bit can help. Yeah. And you know, we have a Patreon. You know, we you know support on Discord. We have lots of ways you can support the show. Yes. But the simplest way yeah. 
is to just rate the thing. Yeah, it helps us. It helps you because then there's more people in the community and you can talk to those people in the community. And you know what? There's there's one more thing you can do. Yeah. You can rate it. I mean, anyone can give five stars. Yeah. Right? I mean, you're gonna. Yeah, of course. I know you're going to. But I mean, frankly, that's table stakes. Anybody can do that. Right. If you really want to show your sport, leave a review. Tell other people what you like about the show. Yeah. Because here's the thing. Now, obviously, I'm just hustling for stars here. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> but if I see a podcast that's got a lot of stars, I don't I don't know if that's the podcast for me. I just know that the people who it's for like it. Yeah. That might not be me. Right. But then when I look at the reviews, I see what they like about it. I can put myself in their shoes. Oh, they love that it does this and this and this. Well, that's not for me. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. frankly, you can tell people what you like about the show. And if it's not for them, it's valuable information. Mm-hmm. Now, ideally, we'd like all this to be for everybody. Yeah. But that's not how the world works. That isn't how it works. But if you want to help people have more confidence, say, hey, this might be a podcast I should check out. Tell them about it. What do you like about it? What's interesting? Tell them how cool Steven is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Definitely mention that. Yeah. I mean, give five stars to the show, but award an extra one for Steve. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You could like emoji stars in your review, which would be funny. That's true. Yeah. Do that. That was like 60 to 70% shameless. Yeah. I'm comfortable at that level. Okay. All right. We'll keep that take then. <laughs> so again, leave a rating or a review, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else. We really do appreciate it. Thanks so much. Okay, so you played games all day. I played games all day. All day. What time did you start? <laughs> I started at 11. Oh, and, um, <laughs> I have to say it was so well organized. Ron organized it and he came earlier and set up tables with all the game and like read each setup rules and like set it up. Wow. So like we just had to like plop ourselves down at a table. We had to learn the rules. Some, some people, oh, it was for the tabletop games. So some people submitted a video that was very helpful on like walking you through the gameplay. Some okay. we just had to read the rules. And part of the evaluation criteria is, did you read the rules and understand how to play the game? <laughs> um, and then we played. And the directions was either play up to an hour, but you can't go past an hour. Okay. So whether you're done or not, you're done in an hour. Yeah. Seems or fair. play until you understand like the feedback, like what the game mechanics are. You kind of understand the direction and the game state and kind of you have enough of a yeah. understanding of the game. So that was cool. I think I said earlier in the podcast, it gave me an appreciation for video games that gently <laughs> scaffold you through <laughs> the mechanics. Uh, uh, and it was funny because all the judges were somehow affiliated to games, right? So mm-hmm. I'm from a video game studio. There was a man who's a kind of a, a consultant kind of for serious games, more in like doing government work. Mm-hmm. Um, there were three different judges came from um, academia in serious games. So we were not a slouch group. And yet when it came to everyone had their own personal style <laughs> to understanding the rules, you know, it was yeah. really funny because some people... It's just the same as life. Some people wanted to do a cursing game. Let's just start playing and figure it out as we play. Yep. And some people were like, I want to read every rule. Yep. And I need to absorb and let's like discuss the rules. Um, so that was interesting because, you know, we're all pros and we were all like, ah, we were all triggered in different ways. <laughs> like, you're going too fast. You're going too slow. I'm bored. I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> uh, okay. So it's not just my gaming group that goes through that every time. <laughs> no. Uh, my, like I mentioned my sister before. Um, we get together and play D&D every week. 
Um, and um, sometimes we play other games as well. And we have the complete opposite styles. She's like, okay, we're going to read the rules. And I'm like, please, please don't. Please I don't. Know, read the rules. Just, I, know. I mean, yes, read the rules, but put the pieces on the. I know. Anyway. I know. I'm also kind of a visual learner. My preferred way to learn a board's game is to play an open face round. So, yeah. like, yeah. read the rules enough play it all open face and then talk about like, well, I'm going to do that because what I'm looking right now is I know this is the end state. I'm figuring that like not to win, but just to, I'm an applied learner, mm -hmm. not a, like a, yeah, I'm not just someone who just reads a lot of rules and can get it. But anyway, so yeah, I was really impressed. The, I think, um, it's so clear that everyone, all the, I think I played seven games um, that everyone who created a game, like put their heart and soul into it. I think, um, uh, I think there was a good variety of gameplay. I think most of the games I played were all for adults. I okay. guess I was thinking there might be more child or teen focused learning games. I maybe just didn't happen against those hmm. or upon those. Um, it's interesting because one of my big takeaways is the same problem I see in serious game videos I saw in the board games. Hmm where game mechanics don't correlate to the learning objectives. Yeah. They're not intrinsically connected. Yeah. So a good example, for example, uh, yeah, what was one a good example? Oh, yeah. One of the games I played was actually for middle school students, and it was kind of about general financial literacy. So it was kind of about, like, you may have to make decisions between spending and saving and you have to pay for some things you have to pay for, for like rent, but some things like a new dog that needs like a monthly allowance for food are optional. And, you know, the way the game mechanics were structured, it was just very clear to win the game. You should spend as little money as possible, hmm. which of course, like in the real world, trade-offs, it's more about trade-offs. Exactly. And in the real world, like maybe having a dog is really important to you and it's worth it. But in the board game, just to win, like you'd never make that choice. Yeah. Because the dog costs a lot of money. Yeah. Um, you know, another game we played was um, more of a corporate training game mm. where it was all about customer per personas and like, like different features that would appeal to different personas. And you kind of had to spend limited resources to decide what features you're going to implement implement to appeal to different personas but the way the scoring worked is you were essentially incentivized to pick one customer and kind of meet their needs as quickly as possible hmm. whereas like probably when this company is rolling out products they would never they would actually not that would not be their strategy to yeah. like you would actually want to appeal to a variety of customers so that you're not pigeonholed i mean so it was like, well, you're teaching me, I don't know if you realize this, but you're teaching me through these game mechanics, you're teaching me to do things a certain way. And I, I actually don't think this is how you want me to think about how I would apply it in a business case. Yeah. Yeah. So that was interesting because of course, you know, we see it all the time with um, serious games and their mechanics that it's like always a struggle of, ooh, from a strategy perspective, this is a really interesting game mechanic. But if you think through what the player is learning how to do, like, is that strategy actually relevant in the real world or, yeah. or in kind of a real situation? Yeah. Does, does the game elicit the kind of behaviors you need to have people execute in real life? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And like, it's almost like, you know, 
you, you like that's the thing about learning games is you have to be careful about you really have to be so thoughtful about your mechanics because you're like whether you like it or not people are learning you know they're learning through the game experience and even though it might not be your intention like that's what the takeaway is going to be mm -hmm. yeah what people experience in your game is what's going to stick with them yeah not necessarily what you wrote on the rules <laughs> right but or yeah. your intent like i saw that yeah. too because with the you know after we played the board game for one hour and trail we felt we understand the objectives we had a pretty rigorous scoring sheet that we mm -hmm. had to fill out and we saw the submission that the that the applicant put in with their with their game and it was interesting because part of it was like well what are the learning objectives and you'd kind of see the learning objectives and i was like there was just a disconnect it's like i see what learning objectives and i see that your content may be matching these learning objectives but the game mechanics are not connected to these learning mechanics. Yeah. I think this is one of the hardest things in serious games because you're so tempted by, ooh, this would be fun for the game. Right. This would be an interesting challenge game-wise. Mm -hmm. But you might inadvertently be like teaching something that is not relevant or is counter even productive to yes. what you're trying to teach. Counterproductive even, yeah. <laughs> Developing games is hard enough. Um, I've told my, I've told our listeners this before, but like developing games is hard enough. It's absolutely insane to then add another layer of complexity on top of it. Like, oh, it has to achieve a goal. But it's so rewarding when it hits, right? Exactly. When you get it to click, it's just the best. Yeah. 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 So I heard someone once describe what we do as like, think of us like any other video game studio mm -hmm. because we have all, you know, similar um we have similar roles and and you know we work with the same technology we work in the same medium we we you know often create games that are in the style of popular games but then add that we kind of add this extra challenge for ourselves that at the end of the play experience the player has to be transformed yeah and a lot of times that transformation is they left with knowledge they didn't have before. But sometimes the objective is that they have a mindset shift where they're activated to take an action in the real world, or they've developed empathy for a situation, a person, or, you know, so, um, so that means we're just better than entertainment video <laughs> game studios, just to let you know. Yeah, I agree. It's harder. We have to be smarter. It is harder. Much harder. And not necessarily, we talked about iteration earlier, not that game development is a straight path at any time, but definitely there's a lot of looping happening. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You got to iterate. So when you did the judging today, you were judging mostly prototypes, right? Or were you judging some finished games? I guess all yeah. of them appeared to be a finished game. Okay. I think some people, like there's one game, they're like, oh, we haven't gotten the printer, the tokens back from the printer. So please accept these like poker chips with numbers on them. Yeah. Which is fine. Mm -hmm. um, some games were definitely, you could tell they were in production and being used. And some games looked like, okay, this guy is still, maybe he has a couple in print, but mm -hmm. they're not in mass production yet. So oh, I didn't see any true prototype. Oh, one, maybe they were printed cards. The art looked final. Um, but I think the box was hand colored, which was actually for, I don't want to reveal the game because it was actually quite charming for the content of the, well, I will tell you the con the subject matter of the game um, was like, 
It's a social emotional learning game. Yeah. Okay. So then the fact that like the box was hand colors, I was like, you made that work. Yeah. You didn't stress about it. You like made it happen. You dealt with your stuff and you did it. So I actually loved it. It's approachable. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's so cool. That's a long time playing games though, back to back. It was with strangers too. It was difficult. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because it was like, well, I don't even know you and... I don't know, everyone, you know, like, because anytime anyone tries something new, it's a little bit stressful. We did it over and over and over again, and we didn't really know each other. And yeah, it was a long day. Yeah. Yeah. And now you have a conference to attend. <laughs> I know. I know. Oh. oh, my. I know. So you're speaking this week? Is that your plan? I'm not speaking. Okay. I'm just here in attendance. Okay, great. So, um, yeah, I always like serious play because it's a great combination of like industry and academia. Mm -hmm. um, I, um, you know, the last couple of years they've had it associated in universities. They used to, uh, which I think adds like a cool dynamic. Mm -hmm. um, I actually just saw the sponsor list and it's like pretty robust. So yeah. kudos to everyone who's sponsoring it and believes something important because um, they had some really big name sponsors for it. And yeah, I think, you know, one of the things post pandemic is that like during the pandemic, we all continued our work and we started developing relation like relationships through video cameras mm -hmm. and through Zoom. And um, I think what it's created, my personal experience is it is actually much harder now to build meaningful connections with people that like move projects forward because mm -hmm. people have probably 10 zoom calls a week with someone they don't know. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like, I think conferences more than ever, and this is not sponsored by any conference, but I, <laughs> any particular conference, but I do think going to events, especially in our industry is more important now than it was pre pandemic. Mm. Um, if you're looking to create partnerships with people you don't know, because yeah. I feel like a lot of the Zoom relationships have just kind of become disposable. Like, yes, you might be successful in getting on someone onto a call once, but as soon as that call is over, it kind of goes out of their head and they're on to the next call. Just another face on a screen. Exactly. Yeah. So I think it's important. And I, I also just love being with industry people. It'll be interesting to see, you know, these types of contracts, conference are always a good mix of like academics, but also like industry professionals. And then the third component, sometimes the people who are kind of embedded in a corporation or an educational publisher or kind of would be more on our client side. So mm -hmm. we'll kind of see what happens because I think, you know, every conference kind of wanders in a different direction. So I'm curious to see how many kind of, um, not recipients, but people who are kind of using games as practice are actually here. Um, either way, I'm fine. I'm fine for an all inside baseball conference where <laughs> we're all makers. Um, yeah. Yeah. Have you gone through and like picked out some of the sessions that you want to see? Um, I have. I mean, I'm always curious. There's a couple, you know, I'm always curious to see what other studios are doing in the industry. I think, you know, there are a lot of sessions there. I'm still interested in, there's been a lot of talk this year about AI and games. Yes. Um, yeah. And I still, I don't, I see some very mild inquiries hmm. when people are interested in working with us, but I don't think it's every, 
like, I think it's still very early. And while there's a lot of like, um, there's a lot of ideas about how game and prototypes about AI and games and how to use it and how to use it responsibly and how to use AI during game development in a responsible way. Um, but I think every conference we're getting, there's more people who are prototyping and trying. So, you know, I think the AI conversation started at conferences is kind of at the beginning of this year is when I started hearing it more. And now we're already in October. So I'm hoping to get a few more sessions in that people are actually using it and applying it. Yeah, there's one, I think, I think it's first thing tomorrow, um, kind of after the kickoff to the conference where someone's talking about um, using AI in Unity. And I was hoping to be able to pick that one up to see, okay, is this more technical? Like, what's what's the use case? Um, I'm definitely still kind of in that, like, let's just, just see what people are doing, learn from them mode. Yep, um, I agree with that. I can imagine lots of different applications, but imagining it is just one tiny slice of actually making it a, a real thing, so... I also like going to sessions where people just talk about the game they made and the impact. I think it's like we make so many different kinds of games all the time. So I really love when um, I just, you know, and we've tackled so many topics. So I love hearing people and their ideas and what they've made and what the impact was, because it's just nice to hear someone outside of our studio who maybe tackled a challenge we've already tackled and see what perspective they've taken. Yeah. See it like, did they tackle the, the challenge from a different perspective? Did they have a different solution? What did they do differently? Yeah. That would be super valuable. Yep. And also, um, it's like, it's nice to hear people talk about projects that are like, at least in the, adjacent adjacent spaces if not the same kind of space agree you know and you're not you know you're like okay no clients jennifer's saying she has the same conversations with clients that we struggle with okay cool it's not us it's not not me it's not me yeah exactly (laughs) yeah i think what's the one interesting thing we should talk about is kind of where game base how where game based learning is and how it's evolving yeah, I mean, it's changed a lot for me since I've just been there eight years. And if I look at the games we made before yeah. nine years, there's definitely been a lot of evolution. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, my hot take is just that, you know, obviously games are more widely adopted. Yeah. I rarely now have the conversations of, do they work? Like, it's just more obvious to most people. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's always always obvious to people that people, that People, especially kids, will like games, right? Kids play video games and therefore kids learning through games makes sense through people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a lot of people, it makes sense of like, oh, they very, if they don't know, they very quickly, it's not hard to get them to understand why games are effective. Yeah. So that's an interesting conversation. I think there's still um, some really practical challenges that we just haven't overcome as an industry Mm. um, in the various markets. I think in the school market, if you're making games to be used in schools, Mm -hmm. there's just, there continues to be a disconnect between what makes an amazing educational game and what teachers are required to accomplish Mm. during their class periods and kind of the focus on um, standards. So, and just the limited amount of time and kind of post pandemic and kind of, you know, just ma- classroom management and like still problem with like getting the right device with the right software on it at the right time and having access to it. 
So I think there's been progress, but I think there continues to be like just the ideal game-based learning specimen doesn't necessarily work with what teachers are required to do. Yeah, and the constraints they're under and also the fact that the constraints can be wildly different from district to district. Yep. Yeah, and that's, that's a challenge because that's a really intersectional problem, right? Like it's not just a game that the not game pointing is, the finger at anyone. Right. In this exactly. It's a whole bunch of things that are very, very tangled together. Yeah. Hmm. And then the fact that, you know, school budgets are tight and then it's like, well, who's actually going to pay for the games? How do the games, do they really have the mechanism to buy a couple of games or do, are they, yeah. you have to get your game embedded in someone's larger curriculum. Like there's just, disconnect there. I think mm-hmm. there's been improvements not solved in my opinion. Yeah. That's on the not solved c- column. I think games direct to consumers for younger kids. I think there's a lot being offered. I think there can there's continues to be and I think about younger kids as the time in your life where the parents are still choosing the apps mm-hmm. and deciding what to download. Um I think there's more and more high quality, higher quality content coming out, but I think there's generally still a, a miseducate, a lack of education with parents of what makes a high quality learning game. Yeah. Um, uh, I think there continues to be a bias with parents who are choosing apps for the kids towards free games, unless you're like a household name, which there are very few of them. Mm-hmm. So parents are gravitating to free content, and a lot of parents uses the bar like is this keeping my child busy as the guide of if that's a great learning game yeah we know that like well not necessarily necessarily. they might be enjoying it as a game right uh but are they learning uh don't know so i think i don't i don't have a solution but i think that we haven't kind of solved that and then i think there's just like i think we've come a long way in like well actually i don't know i think we've i think Corporate organizations have come a long way in accepting games as part of the mix of training materials that they offer. Mm -hmm. I think where there's still resistance, and I don't know, from my perspective, there's resistance and I don't, I'm not seeing progress Mm. is, you know, corporate training departments tend to invest in body count, like people and instructional designers to develop content. Mm-hmm. Um, so when they, they embrace game-based learning as a technology, um, you know, a lot of training departments want to leverage this investment they've made in instructional designers. So then they're equipping their, you know, instructional designers are now told to make games with products that aren't game engines. Yeah or templated game products that just have a bunch of templates that you can load quiz information into. Mm -hmm. Um, And then everyone kind of like checks off like we have games in our training department where we know like, you know, essentially a rich immersive learning game that actually gives you content that you can make. You're empowered to make bold choices that are not right and wrong answers. Mm-hmm. And it lets you explore the context and safe places fail. And all this is kind of the ultimate in game-based learning. And kind of just because of the lack of skill and tools, their training departments are not able to achieve that. Yeah. Um, and 
yet when it comes to, oh, we'll pay someone like Filament to develop that for us, like when they look at the budget to hire someone like us to make that kind of game, they're like, well, that's like, I could hire three instructional designers for the year. Yes, Why would could. I do that? <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you see something similar. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. And because, you know, because the company I work for went through a bunch of mergers, a lot of those conversations are also happening internally. So, um, yeah, we're just working on like refining, understanding internally and then externally with customers and clients. It's like, okay, engagement. Great. It's not, doesn't mean learning is happening. It doesn't mean deep learning is happening. It doesn't mean people are carrying expertise forward. It doesn't mean that they're carrying, you know, like you said, it doesn't mean they've been transformed. Right. Yeah. It means they had fun. Yeah. That's great. They played the game three times. Okay. That's fantastic. That's probably better than what was happening before. You have more data. Great. Okay. You have more data on, but let's, let's see if we can get things to be a little bit richer and deeper. Um, because it's, people, I don't know, I feel like in the last 30 years, everyone's been writing about how the workforce is not, it's not a rote workforce, right? It's a creative workforce. It's trans, it's more informational, it's more creative. And you, you can't, if you want to train people to live in that space and be comfortable and work with, you know, other employees, colleagues in that space, you got to give them things that prompt them to practice that. And Trivia games have their place, but they're not, they don't rise to that level. And they're not a learning game. They're an assessment game. Yeah. You might have just given them a bubble sheet with multiple choice because that's essentially what you're delivering in a more fun format. Yeah. It's more fun. It's more engaging. It's not more powerful necessarily. And it's not learning. It's just testing them on what they know. Yeah. Which is important sometimes in training, but that could have been just a quick quiz. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. And then the last thing, I mean, I think the frontier that we're committed to exploring, which we think is rich with possibility is the commercial serious games market. Yeah. Like I think of it as kind of what documentaries did to Netflix and other streaming services. Great analogy. Yeah. Where they're making... They're, they're making documentaries that are well-researched, well put together, that are, that have some kind of learning component, but also express a point of view. And, and they are marketed to people as, you you know, this is for your enjoyment. Mm -hmm. You will learn something, but it's also very enjoyable. And you have some breakout documentaries that have done incredibly well, which, you know, who knew like, uh, what was it? The, the, my octopus teacher, like, I, I don't know. I don't, I wouldn't have the vision that if I was in a Netflix pitch meeting being like, that's going to be a winner. Yeah. Um, and yet it was such a powerful movie for so many people. So I feel like there's examples of that in the video game industry mm-hmm. where it's like moving r- rich, really like creative gameplay that actually, actually is a serious game, but mm-hmm. then actually people play for enjoyment. Yeah. Um, and can be, you know, financially successful. Yeah. So I think for, you know, filming games as bread and butter has been services. We're always, you know, like any company, we want to have multiple streams of business and we want to be a balanced company and we want, you know, different ways to earn revenue. So if something goes down, you know, we have buffer. So we, these last five years, it started with a grant 
uh, we got from the NSF and SBIR grant, but we've developed um, today a full range of IP around uh, robotics. Cool. Um, and, you know, we launched commercially um, quite modestly as early access game on Steam last year. We're looking forward to our V1 release in 2024. We have, um, we took that IP and reimagined it for the Roblox platform and we're okay. part of the Roblox education initiative that's coming out October 17th. Um, where you, it's the same idea where you design and build robots, but this is to play in sports and sports like events with your friends. So we're really interested. It's kind of a big experiment for us mm -hmm. in terms of can you create something that is actually fun? I don't like the idea of like stealth education. Like we're <laughs> going to trick them into learning yeah. <laughs> because obviously like we actually don't think like learning is bad that we have to trick anyone. Right. But the idea is like, yeah, this is the type of challenge that I enjoy. And the fact is, is there are players who play extremely challenging entertainment video games. Yeah. That are com that the rule set is so complex that the I mean, there's people who spend like literally 20, 30, 40 hours a week in games. Yeah. That have that level of richness and complexity. So you can't tell me that people don't like educational games because they're too hard. Right. Because I see the games they're playing. Yeah. And they're hard. Yeah. See Eve online. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I mean, people are going to, people who are playing a game, they're learning. They're learning something. Exactly. So most of the time, if it's an entertainment game, they're just learning the rules of the game and learning the rules involved in the world and the stories and everything like that. But different it, types of guns and our am ammunition. Yeah. <laughs> however many like cool pets you can get in World of Warcraft sure. or that could just be something else. Just change it to a different co to different content, and there's no reason that can't be content that's pulled right from the real world. Um, so I think that makes a lot of sense, and I can see that you know, just like in some of the mobile games that are available, there's an expanding market for that. Not just in games it's themselves, but also in kind of gamified applications can't listen to a podcast right now or watch a YouTube channel without having like a, an advertisement for brilliant, mm -hmm. you know, and those little pieces, it's not a game per se, but there are like these ideas of interactivity around the learning. And of course, Duolingo has been around forever. They have implemented some additional features that feel a little bit more game-like, more interactive. And so I think that maybe the, the demand for instruction that is interactive is becoming just like groundswell more popular and there's just more demand for it because people have seen it they like it they know it's effective um and it's more fun to go through than just to kind of like watch a boring lecture or skim a blog read post. the rules one of the games i played today had a 12 page rule book oh no we're like it's going to take us no. most of the time just to read through the rules no yeah. it, it was a yes it was a well-designed game. Okay. Some parts of it, but it was challenging. That's a lot. It was a lot. That's a lot. I mean, granted, there were pictures, but still. It makes me think, like, make it a video game. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that's really fun. Um, to come back to your earlier point, though, I just wanted to share one last thing. I mean, I think there's more and more options or more and more um, examples of serious games in the entertainment tabletop gaming industry as well. So I can't remember the name of the developer, but um, 
the creator of Pandemic, the board game, has a new one coming out called Daybreak, which I think is all about climate change. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I think it ships later this month. I backed it on Kickstarter, one of the similar platforms. And it's explicitly right from the beginning. This is about learning about climate change and learning about it. And there is a goal here. So I'm really curious to see how that comes to life because that's got, you know, it's another example of something that has significant potential for commercial success Mm -hmm. and to raise just the general awareness in the consumer base about what's out there. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it might be shocking to some people, but like, you know, the fact of the matter is, is a lot of the serious games that are being built in the world are funded through university or government grants. Mm -hmm. There's so little VC investment. Yeah. In serious games. So that what that indicates to me is that it's still a good idea that people want to research, but the investment community doesn't see yet the commercial kind of 10x potential of, of investing in it. And I'm like, how do we, how do we change that? Yeah. And part of it is consumer preferences. But like I said, I feel like we have Maybe it's more exception to the rule, but if you look through Netflix, maybe it's just my edit based on what I watch is they're buying a lot of documentaries. Yeah. Whereas you don't, you know, so part of me is like, I don't know, for this industry, maybe we can, but part of me thinks we can't be funded as an industry forever by university and government grants. No. Like there's going to be a point where people are like, We've researched everything there is to research. Yeah, six out of, uh, you know, 10 of our grants over the past six months have gone to game-based learning and we have to spread it around a little bit more. For sure. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, like the the VC question, that is a really, I hadn't thought about that before, but it totally makes sense. And I initially, when you mentioned that, was thinking, okay, well, yeah, I guess if I had you know, X number of dollars and I wanted to put it into games, I might put it into a different gaming space versus serious games. But that's not really the question. You don't have to choose one or the other, you know, so that, yeah, that really is interesting. Maybe there just needs to be a critical, a critical mass of success stories to capture more attention. Maybe, but like we went through all the problems in the different markets. Like it's hard to make money with games in schools. It's hard to make money in games with parents. It's hard to make money with games on commercial platforms, with serious games. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, now it's not as hard to get people to play your game. Like if there's a lot of examples of games that are free, there are serious games that are played, you know, that are free to play. Mm Mm-hmm. So that ind- indicates that there's like an interest in getting people to play. It's just getting people to pay for to serious, pay. to play a serious game. Hmm. Right. Because ultimately like an investor is only going to invest if essentially in the end consumers or some entity is paying for it. Right. So even like, there's not that many examples. Like in, when I look at corporate training games, there's certainly a few companies, none of them seem like they're like, killing it, uh, where they make game templates that you can like load your content into. Mm -hmm. And there's a few like game maker products for corporate training, but there's very few companies. I can think of level X out of Chicago makes like medical training games, but there's many, there's very, there's many fewer companies that have games that are for explicit content 
that they've made a business of selling that content to either, you know, higher education or to companies. So I don't, I, I mean, that is something that I'm thinking of all the time in terms of film and games and its growth potential and kind of where's the next thing is, you know, essentially how can, how can we go from being something that it's kind of nice to play every now and then when you hear about it, like a game for a nonprofit or of course school kids like a game anytime in school, but to change it from like something that like is part of our culture that it like, you know, as that you would just, that is commercializable at the scale that you would need it to have like a thriving business. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't figured it out yet. I have an idea. I'll let you know. Okay, good. (laughs) She's so cool. Jennifer Javornik is so cool. Yeah. Man, I want to be like her. (laughs) (laughs) Well, filament games isn't too far away from us. I know we should do a field trip. Oh, that'd be fascinating. Well, we should let them know we're coming. I am I am going to MDev, which is a conference in November. Ooh. Um, probably around the time folks are listening to this episode. Well, they are heavily involved in putting that on. They so. yeah, they're they're part of that. Yeah. For sure. Yep. So tell them hi. Yeah. You guys you guys want to come? Wait, when is it again? I don't remember. <laughs> it's like in a month. We got time and it's not that far. Oh we gosh, can maybe do it. That is not that far, actually. Yeah. Actually, we're taking a, the uh IDGA. Uh, board, we're, we're all getting a car. We're getting field trip, together. field yeah. trip, field. Oh. I was joking at first, and now I'm serious. <laughs> okay, I'm giving a talk there. Oh snap! Yeah, I, I right. literally, literally, till this moment, I forgot. <laughs> that's for later. Yeah. For now, for now, you can find Jennifer Javornik online at LinkedIn, and you can find Filament Games online at filamentgames.com. For show notes and additional links from today's conversation go to our website, nicegames.club. Visit us on social media at Nice Games Club, where Dale posts about game dev resources and cool card art. Reply on the various platforms or email us, contact at nicegames.club. Nice Games Club is on Patreon. Support the show and get stuff, including ad-free episodes. Sign up at patreon.com slash nicegamesclub. And if you want to keep things more casual, just stop by nicegames.club slash discord and say hello. Next week, we'll be talking about scoping for your team with Rob and John Duncan from Bad Viking Studios. But that's it for this week. So until we start again, remember to play nice and make nice. Thanks for talking today, Jennifer. I think it's going to be a really fun conference. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm so glad this worked out and I'm so glad we got to talk. I can cut this part out, but we'll probably air this in the next two weeks. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. I'm just trying to do the math. Calendar math is always a trouble. Also always a problem with, with, with podcasts, but yeah.